Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, Eric Bischoff here, and have you heard about Strictly Business? Strictly Business is a brand new weekly series exclusively on adfreeshows.com. Join me and my co-host John Alba every Tuesday as we take a deep dive into the business of the professional wrestling business. And this is some straight up business talk here, no fanboy nonsense. We discuss television contracts, advertising, licensing, and of course, the highly debated ratings. So if you want an unfiltered, brutally honest, anti-fanboy understanding of the professional wrestling industry, well, Strictly Business is the series for you. And hey, if Elon Musk likes my tweets, and he did, you're going to love Strictly Business. Sign up now. And listen at adfreeshows.com. Get the house you want with the payment you want at buywithconrad.com. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. The first step to buying a house is buywithconrad.com. Hey, I'm Bruce Pritchard. And I'm Conrad Thompson. And this is something else to wrestle with. Welcome to the very first ever something else to wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard. And, well, you're Conrad Thompson. You are. Yeah, I guess we should sort of catch everybody up. Maybe you've been under a rock for the last two years or so. Bruce and I have been having fun on the number one sports entertainment podcast. Who are we kidding? It's a wrestling podcast. That's not just any old podcast, Bruce. It's a two-time, two-time podcast of the year. Wait a minute. Sports Illustrated. Oh, do you have it? Yeah. Show it off. There it is, folks. There it is. It's it's actually a real thing, and you can actually, you know, see this and, and get up close and personal because there actually is an academy of podcasters and we won that and uh of course hashtag we got humble brag right? yeah well you got to sometimes and uh so I got, I got a belt too <laughs> i love you just can't wait to put your stuff over <laughs> let's do a little bit of the show first before you do all your pats on the back here like what the hell it's what we do it is what we do and, and hopefully you've been uh, keeping up with us online at something to wrestle.com and today we're going to bring you something totally different it's brother love and the mortgage guy and i'm just a fan by the way i don't belong here but i'm going to try to be the voice of you as we put the screws to bruce pritchard today bruce are you ready to tackle wrestlemania 14 
I, I don't necessarily understand putting the screws to me, but hmm. if you want to learn a little something and have a little fun, then stay tuned. Well, here we go. Of course, WrestleMania 14 is a topic that I've wanted to cover for a long time because we've covered on our podcast the Royal Rumble from 1998 and No Way Out 1998. So we get the full backstory of Mike Tyson, but we're going to try to catch you up a little bit today. If you'd like a deep dive on those shows, just the first quarter of 1998, check it out in our archives at somethingtowrestle.com. But let's get to WrestleMania, man. Of course, that goes down on March 29th, 1998 in Boston, and it is the Attitude Era. We're only four short months since Brett screwed Brett, and now this is going to be the last we see of Shawn Michaels for quite some time. So we've got Stone Cold Steve Austin challenging for the world title, and he's taking on the leader of D-Generation X, Shawn Michaels. But the real story of WrestleMania 14, the attraction, as you like to say, Bruce, is Mike Tyson. Right. And, and I feel like we should sort of catch everybody up. Mike Tyson at the time, arguably the most sensational star in pop culture. He was fresh off of being suspended from boxing for biting Evander's, Evander Holyfield's ear in the summer of 1997. And now he's looking for a way to pay some bills. And somehow you guys get an association with Mike Tyson. And the result is more mainstream press coverage than you guys ever had. And everybody was covering this from USA Today, ESPN, right. and everybody in between. You'd been with the company 10 years at this point, Bruce. Was this the most press coverage you ever got for a WrestleMania that you recall? This was definitely the most that I had ever been involved with. Now, prior to this, the biggest for me was WrestleMania 11 with Lawrence Taylor. But that was mainly concentrated in the New York market. And you had everybody, Lawrence Taylor, had just retired from football and right. he was going to be in the ring at Wrestlemania with Bam Bam Bigelow so that was a lot of attention there but now you had everybody in the media focused on what is Mike Tyson going to do next so it was it was truly a frenzy so Mike Tyson has been sort of a lightning rod for controversy of course he was knocked out after being the youngest world champion in history uh, he was knocked out by Buster Douglas, and that sort of threw some plans even with you guys back then off course a little bit because Mike Tyson allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, was supposed to do something for the company way back in the Saturday night's main event era. Isn't that right, Bruce? Well, Mike Tyson was scheduled, and he had actually been advertised, and we were ready to go in February of 1989 with a match with between Hulk Hogan and the macho man Randy Savage. Uh -huh, freak out, freak out. But uh, Tyson had a match in Tokyo, Japan against one Buster Douglas. And the outcome of that didn't go according to plan, per se, because Tyson got his ass knocked out <laughs> and was unable to appear. And it wasn't that he was unable to appear. He just didn't appear for us. And we then circled the wagons and we got Buster Douglas to come in and save the day for us. So, yeah, it was not our first encounter with Mr. Tyson. And it is worth mentioning, I guess, that Mike Tyson's not been without controversy, not just on the heels of biting the ear, but before that, he went to prison for a few years. Uh, so Mike Tyson is a guy who it feels like would be a natural heel. And when you guys first showed him on camera at the Royal Rumble 98, it was unanimous booze. Was there a concern that maybe you guys would have trouble getting the wrestling audience to be interested in Mike Tyson. Oh, there we go. We're getting started now. Um, because of, of course, at the end of WrestleMania 14, you know, we're going to give a spoiler here, of course, for something that's 20 something years old. 
Mike Tyson becomes a bit of a baby face. Was there a concern based on his real life troubles that you guys could sort of get the people behind him? I think there was a bit of a concern. And I think there were some people that thought, man, are the, especially the females are the females going to get behind this guy, Mike Tyson. There was a little bit of concern, but I think that we knew what we wanted to do. And in the end, Mike Tyson would be heralded a baby face and they would accept him and get to know him. And, and after that kind of like him, was anybody in the office sort of hesitant about doing business with Mike Tyson, given no. his reputation and his troubles? No, not really. I think that there were the, the normal people that would bring up concerns like some people in promotions and marketing that might say, do we really want to associate ourselves with someone that is a convicted felon and put them in our showcase event? There's always going to be that, but you know, this is coming from someone who has suggested one time doing something with OJ Simpson. So, um, you, you can always ask the question, what if, Okay, and as long as you stick what if in there, man, it's all fair game. The uh, the silly O.J. Simpson story is available in the archives now at somethingtowrestle.com. It's make-believe. Uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about how the Tyson deal came to be. Is this something where Tyson is sort of looking for a payday and reaches out to you guys? Or who in the inner circle said, I got an idea? Well, this was more Vince McMahon looking at attractions and looking at what will be the next big thing? Steve Austin was on the horizon. Steve Austin was going to be the guy. Vince was looking at a way to make Steve get him more eyeballs on Stone Cold Steve Austin and using who from the outside world can we utilize to get more eyeballs on our product. Mike Tyson, extremely controversial. We never really shied away from controversy. So, to bring Mike Tyson in back in pay-per-view after he had been banned from boxing for the most part. Now Mike returns to uh, inside the ring on pay-per-view. That is intriguing. One of the things that uh, I can't wait to talk about, and I know you're going to shut me down because I've been trying for a long time now on the podcast, the rumor and innuendo that was in the wrestling observer from Dave Meltzer said that Tyson was going to receive around three and a half million dollars for his work with the WWE here, whether or not that number is accurate. I don't guess really matters. How fired up were the boys in the locker room when they read in the observer that Tyson was getting three and a half million bucks for this. I think any time that the boys are hearing that someone is getting paid more than them, there's always going to be a bit of a ruckus and there's always going to be the speculation of, Oh, well they're paying this guy, you know, three and a half million dollars. And I'm sitting over here. I'm only making a couple hundred thousand. They don't take into consideration the investment that is being made that this money isn't coming from their pay. It's not potentially going to them. It's not coming out of the same pool that there's jealousy there. And there's people that are looking at it. Hey, that could be mine. What if they paid me that? And what if, you know, I was getting that money. I could draw it and, and make more money for him. But Mike Tyson was an instrument to get eyeballs on the product. Well, one of the things I want to sort of take you to task here for is we're just a handful of months away from that September meeting in 1997, where Vince McMahon went to Bret Hart and said, I can't afford to honor your contract. And now fast forward to January and Mike Tyson's on TV and the rumor and innuendo is that he's getting three and a half million bucks. 
Did any of the Hart family have some sort of issue with this? Or did anybody sort of say, hey, what about Brett? Well, I'm sure Brett said, what about Brett? And I'm sure Brett probably had that going through his mind quite a bit. No one from the Hart family, as far as Owen or Davey, none of those guys came. I don't think Davey was with us at the time, but Owen certainly was. No one came back and said, hey, what about Brett? I think that the business was moving in a positive forward momentum. We we had momentum. And this was an opportunity for, you know, first time that we're looking at, we're going to overtake our number one competitor, which was WCW, and we're going to overtake them. And we're going to be able to now maybe get in front and hopefully never have to look back after that. Guys saw it as an opportunity, and I think that there were probably rumblings with different talent amongst themselves, going, oh, they're paying this guy all this money. But the end result, when people started seeing the crowds increase, when people started seeing USA Today covering the WWE, then they saw the worth of it all. Well, and that coverage really gets amped up when the news comes out right in the middle of this deal with you guys that Don King and Mike Tyson are finally going through a split. And for a long time, those two names had been synonymous. Of course, Don King was Mike Tyson's promoter. And according to the rumor and innuendo, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, with that relationship is when Mike finds out from a WWE official that Don King had made a side deal with the company for $300,000 in order to use his likeness, maybe for action figures and things like that. Do you recall there being a $300,000 discrepancy between Mike, Don King, and the WWE at the time? I don't know what the dollar amount was. I do remember the rumblings, and I definitely remember that there was talk that Don maybe had not been totally forthright in dealing with Mike Tyson and telling him everything that was going on in the negotiations with the WWE. So that created even more of a riff because Mike was already looking at Don and looking at his dealings with Don over the years and figuring out maybe he wasn't getting everything that was coming to him at the time. So it was just one more pancake on the stack to kind of say, Hey, maybe I need to look elsewhere. So talk to me about Don King. I've always been curious because he is probably the most famous boxing promoter of all time. There's a short list there, but Don King's got to be near the top of it. What was his relationship like with Vince McMahon? What did Vince McMahon think of Don King? I think Vince liked Don King, but you also have to know who the hell you're dealing with. And Vince knew who he was dealing with when he was dealing with Don King. And you had to make sure that you covered your ass. Just take care of your business and make sure you weren't getting screwed. Well, let's talk about that because once this falling out happens, the rumor and innuendo, and I believe Stone Cold has even freestyled this on his podcast, is that maybe Vince McMahon had eyes on managing Mike Tyson uh, to the point that every time we see Mike Tyson on WWE TV, it feels like Shane McMahon is sort of attached to the hip with him. And uh, it's not that far of a stretch to really think about because we know that Vince McMahon is promoted at the XFL and bodybuilding and everything in between, even a boxing pay-per-view once. What was Vince's appetite? Was he interested in trying to be the manager and, and take care of Mike Absolutely. Tyson and his boxing side? Absolutely. Vince was definitely interested in the Mike Tyson brand, and he was looking at possibly taking over the managerial reins of Mike Tyson and being able to promote Mike Tyson and help Mike 
get his uh, license back to be able to box once again. So Vince was looking into the future. He wanted to get Mike and show Mike what the WWE could do for him, what Vince McMahon could do for him, what Shane could do for him, but what the monster, what the machine could do for Mike Tyson. And this was an opportunity, bring Mike into our world, show him, present him in a way that Mike had never been presented before and be able to say, hey man, uh, here you go. This is what we can do for you. And if we can do that for you in this arena, think what we can do for it in your arena and put it in the boxing genre and be able to create more, just more for Mike Tyson. So guys, uh, I just turned 40 last year and all of a sudden you start thinking about things you didn't used to think about. Of course, I'm talking about aging, but buddy, I've learned a little bit about NAD plus supplementation. And that's why I'm happy to brag about basis from Elysium health. They really are the most trusted source for NAD supplementation. Their product basis is clinically proven to increase levels of NAD plus by 40%, both safely and sustainably. Let me explain. Elysium products target aging at its source. They're unlike any other health company Bruce and I have ever seen. And now they're at the forefront of NAD plus supplementation. Check this out. They have dozens of the world's best scientists. In fact, eight of them are Nobel prize winners. And this is something that we can really get behind because we understand that NAD plus is found in every single cell of your body. You may not know this, but it's responsible for creating energy and regulating hundreds of cell functions. But unfortunately, our NAD plus levels decline as we age, lack of sleep, intense exercise, unbalanced diet, even sun exposure also deplete those NAD plus levels. Decreased NAD plus levels are linked to faster biological aging and can slow down vital body function. That's why basis replenishes those youthful levels of NAD plus to help promote healthy aging, support cellular energy and metabolism. And to just reduce your general tiredness to keep you feeling good for longer. Many basis customers also report experiencing higher energy, less fatigue, and more satisfying workouts. This has been a game changer for me and my family. My wife is all about this stuff and boy, she's, she's taught me a lot. NAD plus man, I'm all in. I'm sold on basis. I recommend you try it too. It's not just going to help you with general tiredness and fatigue. It's not just going to support you in recovery from workouts. It's not just going to support energy and metabolism on the cellular level. It's also going to activate those longevity genes to promote healthy aging. And that's what we're really talking about here. So go check it out. Go to trybasiscom slash wrestle and enter promo code wrestle at checkout to save 10% off basis prepaid plans, as well as other Elysium health supplements. That's trybasiscom slash wrestle and use the promo code wrestle at checkout to save 10%. Thank you. Elysium health for sponsoring today's episode. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used PaintYourLife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now, I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from PaintYourLife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, painterlife.com can really create a hand painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. 
I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the painterlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about painterlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with painterlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion. That's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Hypothetically, and this is something that I've always wanted to know, what was Shane McMahon doing at the time? Like what was his role with the company besides sort of being Mike Tyson's babysitter whenever Tyson was here in real life through the week? What was Shane's contribution like here in, in early 98? Shane was doing a lot of things. You know, Shane was still young. He had just graduated from college and Shane was working in the TV studio. Shane had been in the New York sales office and, and learning all aspects of the business. So this was an opportunity where Shane's starting to get into the creative side of things, but also his main focus was business. This was an opportunity for Shane to get to know Tyson, for Tyson to get to know Shane. Shane's young, had a lot of crazy, great ideas. And Vince felt that Shane would be the best one. Yeah, he was babysitting him, making sure that Mike got up on time and made all of his appearances. But at the same time, it was to put Mike at ease and to let Mm -hmm. Mike know that, hey, everything's cool here, man, and and we're going to treat you right. And if you need anything, here's the guy, Shane McMahon, that's going to take care of you. So it was kind of a one-two punch in that regard. So you mentioned that Shane had some sort of crazy out there ideas. Can you share one of those with us that maybe (laughs) we don't know about because it didn't happen? Of course I can when you ask me on the spot like that. No, Shane always had out there ideas, and Shane was one of the big proponents when we did the WCW brand split of completely 
separating the brands, even so far as to why don't we go get offices in Atlanta, Georgia? Why don't we go take over their offices and run it in a different part of the country away from being under Vince's thumb? And if Shane was going to be the one that was going to be in charge of WCW, then why not? Let's try it. But he, you know, Vince thought that was crazy, but they were just out there and they were different. One of the ideas we've heard about as wrestling fans is that Shane was sort of pushing to either purchase strike force or UFC or have the family get into the MMA business. Can you confirm as to whether or not that's true? Yeah, that's definitely true. He was looking, always looking Vince looked at, you know, the WWE as an entertainment company and always looking for something else to be able to expand and grow. Let's talk about Mike Tyson again, because there's rumor and innuendo. And as the legend goes, had he not bitten Evander Holyfield in June of 1997, Las Vegas was going to host Monday night nitro the following Monday. That's the legend. And Mike Tyson was supposedly going to stop by and hang out with some of his wrestling friends. Had that happened, and I guess more importantly, had he not bitten Evander Holyfield's ear, none of this probably would have happened, right? I mean, you need that sequence of events to happen to get to here, right? Well, yes, you did. Because for Mike to be banished from the boxing world definitely helped our case and definitely put Mike in a position where he couldn't go to his traditional means of income, which was the boxing world and the boxing ring. So now Mike has got to look for something else, and it's an opportunity for Mike to still be in the grappling business and in the ring, if you will, and to capitalize on his name. But to the WCW rumor... 100% 100% false that that was never going to happen. And that was never in the works. Let me ask about Tyson as a wrestling fan, because we've heard that Tyson grew up on wrestling and he's even named Bruno San Martino before. Did you have conversations with Tyson about his fandom? Sure. Mike is one of those old school fans. Mike loved his, his old timers. When I say the old timers, the first time that Mike Tyson saw Gorilla Monsoon, he was like a little kid at Christmas time because it was, oh my God, Gorilla Monsoon, Gorilla Monsoon. I've I, 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 I watched you since I was a little kid. That's my terrible Mike Tyson. Uh, That's not the best Mike Tyson. I know. Ever. You know, half ass afraid to do a Mike Tyson impersonation, even though everybody does because um, he'll kill you. But uh, Mike, Mike was a big fan. Mike loved the wrestling business and Mike grew up on the likes of chief J strongbow and, and, uh, Arnold Skolin, Bruno San Martino was his favorite and he just wanted to be around it. He loved it as a kid and as an adult grew to love it. And the fact that he got to participate in it kind of made his world complete. Well, and you guys were really on cloud nine when he finally steps in a ring And he goes nose to nose with Stone Cold Steve Austin. They have a pull apart on Raw, and it goes viral. Back before that was even a word. It was on every newspaper, every television station. It's what everybody was talking about. And it sort of led a lot of speculation that maybe we were going to see Mike Tyson actually face Stone Cold Steve Austin at WrestleMania. Was that ever even discussed, or did all the media sources just sort of jump to conclusions on their own there? The media sources definitely jumped to conclusions on their own there. However, internally, yeah, it was discussed. There were a lot of what-if scenarios. If you were to have Mike Tyson in a wrestler versus boxer match, man, that's gold. That's shit. That's platinum. And, <laughs> you know, that that's something that's everyone's dream. The, you know, one-on-one, who's going to win, the wrestler or the boxer? Right. 
to be able to do that and pull that off with someone the likes of a Mike Tyson would have been incredible, believe me. But at this time, Mike wasn't interested in that. Mike still wanted to pursue a boxing career. And Mike was looking, you know, to be able to get his name out there, get a good payday, participate, and have his name in a positive light. So that is what we approached him because we kind of knew the answer to the other question. Well, that whole boxer versus wrestler analogy that you made is really the the genesis behind the UFC, except no one would ever imagine that you would get a boxer with the name and, and the sort of chutzpah <laughs> of exactly. Mike Tyson. Yeah, so it's a big deal. So let's talk about the press conference. It goes down in early February. It's at the All-Star Cafe there in New York City. And you guys have it sold out, hanging from the rafters, as the old wrestling expression goes. More than 100 reporters are on hand to cover it. More than 30 cameras from all over the world because people are enamored with Mike Tyson. And now yeah. this sort of plot twist of what's going on with Don King. Seeing that reception, Vince McMahon had to be tickled with all the press that were there. Did he not? Oh, my God. We were all tickled. It was euphoria because, for once, we didn't just get the guys that, okay, I'm going to go cover the wrestling press conference. Oh, boy. You know, whatever. Now you had the sports writers that were all there who all had their jaded comments and their jaded views. You had the entertainment people there and you had news, actual just guys on the daily news beat who were interested in Mike Tyson, the human being. So there was a lot of controversy. There was a lot of talk about the disruption in the Mike Tyson and Don King camp. So people were interested and they wanted to see and get Tyson's comments on that. Well, and I guess we should go ahead and uh, talk about the fun that happened at this press conference. Of course, we're going to have a little bit of jaw jacking here with Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels and, of course, Mike Tyson. And everybody's sort of threatening that they're going to get into it, whether it's Austin and Tyson or whoever. But eventually, it looks like Shawn Michaels is going to come to blows with Steve Austin, your typical pro wrestling press conference. But right in the middle, to hold the guys apart, it's our main man, Shane McMahon. And of course, Iron Mike Tyson. Now, Tyson had never done something like this before. And so when he does, he has his back to the camera. And you can hear, as you, if you go back and watch this old footage, Vince McMahon off camera yelling instructions to Mike. Hypothetically, what did that sound like, Bruce? Damn it, Mike. Turn your, turn your back. Your back is on the camera. Turn around, pal. Devil got to see your face. I want to see that moneymaker. Ah, yeah. This is what we're doing, folks. Something else to wrestle with Bruce Richard. And actually, in the podcast, I do that all the time because we're usually on Skype and I just, you know, hold hold people up. And whenever I hold Vince up, it always just kind of brings me back to, oh, oh, your arms look great, boss. Can I oil them up? You know, stuff like that. He used to follow me on Twitter. I'm sure he doesn't now. Uh, well, let's go ahead and, and talk about this because uh, one of the things that we fans really enjoyed at the time is the inability for Mike Tyson to properly call the challenger's name. Do you have an impression of uh, maybe Stone Cold's takeaway there? Damn, kid, I don't have that little face up here, but it was something like, my name's Stone Cold, and uh, I sure would appreciate if you get that right. Yeah, so that's the best I can Stone do. Cold Stone. Cold Stone. Like, Cold Stone. Could you hear JR? Yeah. Okay. Now imagine this for a minute though. If, if JR, if it wasn't 
Stone Cold. Cold Stone! Cold Stone! Cold Stone! Cold Stone! Oh my God, it's a slobber knocker! It could have been an opportunity for some crossover marketing for the ice cream, could it not? Yeah, as a matter of fact, yeah, it'd be a nice little creamery, Cold Stone Creamery, and then Steve could get some royalties from that. Shit, why not? Can you imagine what some of the names of the ice cream concoctions would have been if they had a WWE crossover? It's silly. So let's talk about something else that's silly. There's lots of rumor and innuendo, and I guess we should just go ahead and address it now, as to the the validity of Shawn Michaels' back injury. Uh, I guess we should remind you that he had a casket match with The Undertaker at Royal Rumble 1998. He does a uh, backdrop over the top rope, down to the floor, but on the way, cracks his back on the corner of the casket. And a couple of days later... He is in serious pain. Uh, it feels like there is a hot searing knife in his back. He can barely move. And then the next day, mm-hmm. after he's flown home, he wakes up in his bed. He can barely move to the point that he has to crawl over to the phone. He calls his parents, and they call an ambulance to come get him. Right. And they take him to the hospital, check him out, do an MRI, give him some shots, give him a handful of pills, and sort of send him on his way. But there's lots of people who are sort of curious about the timing of this. Because we're about a year away from when he lost his smile and forfeited the title before WrestleMania 13. When you guys first hear of this injury, are there sort of grumblings amongst the boys and maybe even some in the office as to whether or not this was a real injury or is this just Sean being Sean at the time? There were definitely grumblings and I I would venture to say that there were far more skeptics than there were sympathetic ears at this point because... Of the timing and the fact that, as you said, a year ago, Sean, his knee was injured. And while talking about forfeiting the championship due to a knee injury, he brings up losing his smile. So there, it was suspect at best, I guess, as my good friend JR would say. So people doubted it. People didn't know if it was legitimate. Which, by the way, it was a legitimate injury. And it was a very bad injury. Timing of it, though, didn't help, and right. it, it certainly didn't help that, you know, Sean being Sean wasn't talking to a lot of people, and I think that uh, he didn't allow anyone to feel sorry for him, really. At this point, it was a little bit like the boy who cried wolf with Sean, was it not? That now he really did have a legitimate injury, and some of those other ones people weren't so sure about, but people are buying into this one. Would that be fair to say? Exactly, and you can only you, you start to think, okay— if you're hurt, then we need to get need to get you into our doctors. We we need you to come in so that our people can take a look at you and hopefully help you. There was doubt whether or not Sean was seeing the right kind of doctors or qualified right. doctors, which I don't think that he he wasn't, but from the office you just wanted to be sure and you wanted to know for sure what the extent of the injury is what can be done, and what, what he should and shouldn't do. D-Wolf Comics is your source for legendary action. Step into a world of epic action and suspense with former indie wrestler and now writer Wes Nodal. As the creative mind behind D-Wolf Comics, you'll see Undead Row, his debut creation, incorporate action, suspense, horror, with a little conspiracy mixed in to keep things interesting. A death row inmate on the verge of execution agrees to subject himself to experimental drug tests created by the military. The successful drug test creates a zombie outbreak inside the prison that now must be contained 
before it reaches the outside world. Then in the gripping comic book series of Lilith, one guardian angel decides to fall, not only to protect the earth that has descended into lawlessness, but to ensure that those who have caused the needless pain and suffering pay for it. While she fights crime, she discovers she must keep her own inner demon at bay. Visit dwolfcomics.com today to find out how the story unfolds. Use the promo code wrestle and get 10% off your entire order at dwolfcomics.com. So Sean makes a call and, and tells Vince exactly what's going on. And they make a plan to go ahead and take the February pay-per-view off, even though he'd be advertised for a 10 man tag, he's not going to be able to make the shot. And they announce it the week of, but along the way, Vince also says exactly what you suggested. We want you to come see our doctor. So they send him to New York to check out the doctor who took care of Dennis bird, who was a famous right. New York jets football player who had a serious spinal injury that happened in the middle of a football game. Very well known at the time that doctor tells Sean, you have two herniated discs and one that's completely crushed. Your wrestling career is over one errant shot could mean the loss of your legs. You need to be done. Sean gets a second opinion at his home in San Antonio, sort of hears similar news, but then calls Vince to say, I'm doing WrestleMania no matter what. I just need to take it easy until then. Now, I don't know that that would happen these days. I mean, these days no. I can't imagine the company just going against doctor's orders in order to get the match in the ring. Wouldn't you agree? I, I definitely would agree. And I don't know that we would have gone against doctor's orders at that point either. I think that it was something that Sean felt he could get through and there were doctors that, okay, yeah, he, he could wrestle another match and understand the consequences and understand the what ifs, if you will. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because when Vince gets this call that maybe his WrestleMania main event is in jeopardy, do you guys start to at least whisper a backup plan or did Vince already have that before he ever announced the match? We didn't have a backup plan <laughs> at that point. We really didn't have a backup plan. We needed to get that championship off of Shawn Michaels, the heel onto the newly anointed guy to carry the company for the next several years, stone cold, Steve Austin. So now you're thinking and you're trying to think what, what, what the hell do I do now? And who's it going to be? And that wasn't, we didn't have it going into it. It wasn't, well, if Sean can't do it. What do we do? It was, how do we get Sean there? Well, so there you go. Uh, along the way, of course, Sean is willing to try anything. And he wrote in his book that he even tried a shiatsu massage. And I just couldn't help but wonder, what do you think old JR thinks about those massages? Well, I like the shiatsu because it's it's soothing and it and it's and it's nice and you get to get a good little get a good little rub on sassafras. And Jr. knows a thing or two about rubs. You should check out his barbecue rub. It's available now at jrsbarbecue.com. Actually, yeah, uh, and good sauce too. Absolutely, real tight on all that. <laughs> so let, let's talk a little bit. You're going to get caught up here, WB Network. Uh, all of our little gimmicks that we're trying to work in the show here, they're at somethingtowrestle.com. Sean wrote in his book here, of course, that he's in excruciating pain, so he's self-medicating at the time, and he describes himself as being a quote-unquote bear to deal with. That'd uh, be an understatement. Well, that's what I want to sort of hear from you because he's sort of threatening to not show up to WrestleMania and he just feels a little neglected. Like all the attention is on Steve and he's what's next. And there's really no appreciation for what Sean has done for the company, whether it was screwing Brett or working hurt or whatever else Vince asked. 
and he felt a little neglected. So he could be sort of difficult to deal with. Do you have any stories or memories of that time? Well, all the attention was on Steve. Steve was there every night and Steve's out there busting his ass and Steve is going to be the guy that's going to carry the company. We need to get Sean to WrestleMania so that Sean can now do the favors so that everyone knows clearly Stone Cold is going to be the man. That was the focus. No different than Sean was the focus going into WrestleMania 12 when he faced Bret Hart and Bret kind of felt second fiddle at the same time. We had to focus on Steve because we had Steve all the time. Sean wasn't available for a lot of the media appearances and a lot of the TVs that we needed to get there. So yeah, the focus is going to be on Steve. Was Sean not appreciated? Absolutely not. That's not true because Sean was definitely appreciated for everything that he did to get us there. And Vince has a special place in his heart for Sean. And he does appreciate everything that Sean did for the company. And at this time he did appreciate Sean, but at the same time, didn't want to deal with a lot of the bullshit that Sean was dealing us at the time. Well, let's talk about stone cold for a minute, because all of a sudden it feels like you guys are sort of trying to figure out how to book TV because Stone Cold Steve Austin is supposed to be the featured guy. He's, of course, going to win the world title at WrestleMania 14. But now Sean isn't as available as he once was, and Mike Tyson's on limited dates. So it feels like you guys were sort of forced to hurry along this Mr. McMahon-Stone Cold Steve Austin feud because all of a sudden, Steve needs somebody to sort of mix it up with. And they start to jab back and forth about whether or not Stone Cold can be molded into the corporate champion. Uh, right. Stone Cold is flipping him off, ripping his jacket, calling him yellow. And, of course, Vince is yelling, Austin's going to pay. When did you guys know that you were going to go to McMahon and Austin? And was that sort of hurried along? Or did it just happen because you didn't have anybody else for Steve to mix it up with, with Sean's injury and Mike's limited dates? The entire Mr. McMahon character was a happy accident. And the fact that we didn't have Sean, the fact that we really couldn't start a program with anyone else and Steve, because we had to get to WrestleMania, we had a lot of programs we needed to blow off. We knew in the back of our mind, we were going to go with Mick Foley and Steve post WrestleMania. Okay. But on the way there, you got, you've got to get to Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. They're, you, you've got this guy, Mr. McMahon, who has gone on television and talked about how Brett screwed Brett, pal. Right. Um, people were booing Vince when he would walk out. So we used that and used Vince is the owner character now just is a stopgap. He had to, right. Steve had to have someone, Steve had to have somebody to, to work off against. of. Yes. Right. And Vince was a great foil. It just happened that way. It wasn't. We weren't sitting there going, man, we're going to start this Mr. McMahon character. And, and by God, Steve and Mr. McMahon are going to have this long arc. It was, we need something. It's here. It's logical. Let's use it as a bridge to get where we need to go after WrestleMania. So the plan was never to make it necessarily a long feud. It's just, this is going to hold us over until Mick Foley can come in after the title switch. Correct. 
Mr. McMahon at that time was never going to be that long, the character, (laughs) you know, and you say that now and you look at, you know, the Mr. McMahon character and what defined Monday Night Raw in so many ways, which was the Austin McMahon era. Um, No, at this point, we were using Mr. McMahon. We were using Vince. We didn't even really have Mr. McMahon yet. We were using Vince as the bridge to get where we needed to go. Well, I think you sort of see the birth of the Mr. McMahon character in February and March on raw, because there's lots of little promos along the way where I think in one time he's even talking to Kevin Kelly and he says, I didn't punch Steve Austin because I didn't want to break his jaw and ruin the main event of WrestleMania. And when asked, you know, if he would be happy with stone cold, Steve Austin as the world champion, he said, it would be okay if we could mold him, but we know we can't. So, oh, hell no. And uh, I just feel like that, to me, when you go back, was really the beginning of the Mr. McMahon character. And I feel like Vince would probably have said the same thing about us having a show here on the WWE Network, wouldn't he? Absolutely. And you look at you look at those times, and it's funny because that was Vince just being Vince. That's the beauty of that character. It was just Vince being Vince. That's what Vince would say in real life. And as he did it, it was just creating that character, making him stronger and stronger. So let's talk about, and this is something that I've always wanted to ask. You guys ran a Tuesday, Monday night raw because you were preempted on Monday. And when you're preempted on Monday, this Tuesday show is the highest raw rating ever. Of course it's unopposed because nitro was still on Monday. So nitro enjoyed great ratings, but USA got a record out of you guys when you ran on Tuesday. Did seeing the success of running unopposed ever create a conversation, at least on the USA side, as to whether or not you guys should have moved over to Tuesday just to pick up the bigger rating? Not really, because you know we were first on Monday night, and there was also momentum. We had momentum behind us and felt that if we were to make the move, that that would almost be defeating, admitting defeat. And Vince wasn't about to do that. He was going to succeed. He was going to stay where he was in the beginning. He started it there and he was going to end it there. This is something I've wanted to ask about for a while. On the final episode of Raw Before WrestleMania, The Undertaker visits his parents' gravesite and he's apologizing (laughs) to his parents for fighting Kane. But he says, If I don't beat Kane, I'm ready to burn in hell. What? Is this, that's great television. (laughs) What is it? What is this? This is great television. Come on, man. This is what, what the hell we do. This is, this is great TV. Talk me through because you're a producer at the time. And of course, for those of you who maybe don't know, uh, (laughs) Bruce takes credit, great credit for this undertaker Kane storyline and and even has children named as twins or Kane and undertaker. Not really. Uh, anyway, I wanted, what is uh, wrong with you, man? Hey, Hey, it's, it's on the WWE network. It's gotta be true. And I do. And I do spell Kane the same way since of course you do. Of course course I do do. because I spelled Uh, Kane the wrong way than it is in the Bible, but you know, so let me ask this though. I've always been fascinated. Anytime you guys do a shoot in a graveyard, did you produce this? Are you like, getting permits and getting permission to shoot a graveyard. Are y'all just driving down the highway and say, just pull over over there. We'll just shoot it right here. 
Uh, well, sometimes we did, but uh, <laughs> no, for a graveyard, you usually have to have a little permission. Come on, man. I'm not that bad. Can but you imagine you- just strolling through the graveyard? I don't know why you'd be there at night, but let's pretend you are. And you see the f- undertaker walking around the graveyard. Dude, come on. No, the be- the best one is the time that we were actually shooting in a graveyard with uh, IRS and we had a hole dug. And while we were in production, an old couple pulled up in the car and got out. The wife had purchased this gravesite as a surprise for her husband. And she was bringing him to the gravesite to show them their new plot. And as he walks up, oh he my. says, oh, hey, honey, do you know something I don't know? So it got to be a little little tricky at times when we were shooting graveyards, but I had a few of my favorite graveyards in the Northeast, and I had some down in Texas. What? I had a few favorite graveyards. Only on this show would that sentence ever be said. Doesn't everybody have a favorite graveyard that they like to go no. and, and shoot no. and dig up? No. The, be- the, best, one, the best one, dude, was, was one that we did in... Um, in San Francisco, I guess, uh, because there are no, there's no more like grave sites in San Francisco. There's just such a land shortage. And this guy agreed to let us shoot in the oldest cemetery in San Francisco. And while we're standing there, uh, undertaker looks at me and says, think they could dig us a hole. And a guy with a spade and a shovel dug the most perfect six foot hole with steps so that we could step into it um, that I'd ever seen in about 25 minutes. So, yeah, man, I, I know a lot about cemeteries. This is amazing. Only here do we talk about stuff like this. I, I want to ask, though, because this is around the time when you guys are trying to get over the Kane character. I guess we should remind everybody he debuted uh, in October of the prior year at Bad Blood. So we had been teasing his appearance for a long time, but we finally get to meet him in October of 97. Now here we are in March of 98. And Paul Bearer, who is now with Kane, is really taking issue to the Undertaker's promo in the gravesite, and he wants to demonstrate what Kane's capable of. Right. So uh, he makes the lights go nuts. He fries some electrical equipment. He blasts a spotlight, and then he sets a cameraman on fire. Like whose idea is this? Well, I mean, if you want to demonstrate how powerful he is, you gotta you gotta light people on fire. It was probably a combination of mine and Vince's. What Which if? Vince? Oh, okay. McMahon. Okay. Russo was on the outskirts at this point, bro. I'm just saying. The hell is he? I got him over here somewhere. Wait a minute. When old people work electronics. Bro. I wasn't there. Does he look stoned in this picture or what? You know what's funny is you just went a little British bulldog. You went bro, and then I wasn't there as a British Bulldog. So Meltzer compared this demonstration from Kane, where you set a man on fire to uh, the Papa Shango angle from a few years prior. And I, right. I know that you, you take a lot of pride in Kane. Do you have a response to Dave Meltzer's comparison? Yes. So here's my first breaking that wall, Dave Meltzer. <laughs> you know what? And, and, and I'm even going to, I'm even, I, I wasn't even involved in it. But yet, I'm going to defend the Papa Shango stuff. I thought the Papa Shango stuff was some of the greatest stuff ever on WWE TV. It was unique, it was different, and it got people talking. Now, the Kane stuff was unique, and it got people 
talking. So because it wasn't in the Tokyo Dome, maybe if he set the Tokyo Dome on fire, then your little critic over there would go, oh my God, that was five stars with the double half moonsault. You know, science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering our core body temperature. And if you've ever lived in the South, you know what we're talking about. You've got a ceiling fan in your bedroom, right? And if you're like me, you used to crank down the AC just to get the house nice and cool. Cause you knew you slept better. Well, it turns out we were onto something. Temperature controlled sleep repairs your muscles after a hard day's work. It improves your cognitive function to strengthen your athletic readiness. That's why this Memorial day, chili sleep is working with veteran organizations to support our hero sleep and recovery too. Chili sleep makes customizable climate controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. These water-based temperature controlled mattress toppers fit over your existing mattress to provide you your ideal sleep temperature. It's like a smart thermostat for your bed. Their cooling technology leverages water's amazing thermal powers for deep restorative sleep. They're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. And recently, Chili Sleep partnered with the Independence Fund for Memorial Day to donate sleep systems and show gratitude to our veterans. Plus, U.S. military and veterans can get special savings at checkout through Memorial Day weekend. Speaking of Memorial Day weekend, I got to tell you, I did not. I know this sounds crazy for me to say here. I did not get the great night's sleep I hoped for one night. Now, Chili Sleep has been a game changer in my life, but it turns out I forgot to put some more water in there. So I wasn't as cool and didn't sleep as well. And I couldn't figure it out the next day. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's because I didn't have enough water in my chili sleep. I put the chili sleep back in it, right? I put the water back in it rather the next night, man, back to normal. I don't know how I ever lived without chili sleep. I was miserable just sleeping the way you do right now without chili sleep. Once I've had this thing, buddy, I am so spoiled. I cannot recommend this enough. I I went from sleeping six hours a night and kind of tossing and turning and fighting with my pillow so I'm sleeping seven, eight, nine. I even hit 10 hours once. And I, I can't tell you what it's like to wake up and not be tired. I know because of chili sleep. Now I know I can't go back. Uh, chili sleep, man, it's changed my life. Sincerely. I cannot recommend this enough. This is an investment in your well being, and it is so well worth it. I have multiples. Everyone in my family has them now. Head over to chilisleep.com forward slash wrestle to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new cube or Uller sleep system. This offer is available, especially for something to wrestle with listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili C H I L I sleep.com slash wrestle to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up feeling refreshed every day. Okay. Let's move along. Let's talk about, you brought it up. Let's talk about the go home edition, uh, of, of Monday night raw on our way to WrestleMania. I found this sort of interesting in my research. I'd really forgotten about this. That final Raw before that WrestleMania, the main event was Stone Cold Steve Austin taking on Rocky Maivia. And of course, one year later at WrestleMania 15, that would be the main event. But of course, it doesn't do enough to win the ratings. It loses by more than a point to Nitro. But business is way up despite what the ratings are. Attendance is up 82%. Live gates are up 87%. So business is way up. But I'm curious, does Vince McMahon still feel like this is second place based on it not beating Nitro in the ratings? About this time, business-wise and looking at the company, we weren't looking at being second place because we were making money. Our business was up. Our house show business was up. Advertising sales were up. The business overall was very healthy. 
and we had turned a corner, man. Six months had made a huge difference, and we saw the light at the end of the tunnel, and there was momentum, and there was something that you know you, you could believe in. So it wasn't so much, okay, we didn't win the ratings that night. That's all right. Because so many people, we knew that Mike Tyson was a draw, and we knew that Tyson was going to mean something at WrestleMania that week. I feel like we should also mention the really famous incident where you guys had a public workout right before WrestleMania. It goes down in Boston. I don't know that you guys expected it to be as big as it was. Allegedly, there's more than 10,000 fans in attendance. I believe Wade Keller even said it was more than 15,000. It was a happening and along the way, somebody throws a battery at Shawn Michaels. He's not in a good place physically, emotionally, mentally. And now people are throwing things at him. Allegedly, he had quite the meltdown here. Bruce, you were there. What can you tell us about this incident at the public workout in Boston? Well, we expected probably three to 4,000 people to show up. It was lunchtime. It's got in the middle of the week. We thought we'd have a good crowd. We thought we would do well. Before we even started, they estimated over 12,000 people in this square in Boston. They'd actually called the riot police to assemble because the crowd just kept growing and growing and growing. So we had, you know, a lot of different things going on. And when Sean and all those guys went out to the ring and Sean got hit in the head, Sean stormed back to the uh, limousine that was parked there. Sean refused to come out and, and had uh, cut quite the promo on me personally and everybody else that was involved. And, you know, I'm not going out there. Just, you don't have enough protection and, you know, screw you and everybody else and tell Vince I'm not doing it. Okay. So now we're kind of in a dilemma here because the entire workout was set to get one picture. And that picture was Steve Austin tied up in the ropes with Mike Tyson and Shawn Michaels on either side of him to get that, that one picture that's going to go out all across the wire to USA today, ESPN, everybody's going to get, you know, get this picture. It's got your three guys in the main event with stone cold tied up in the ropes and the double kiss. And now Shawn's refusing to come out. So we go back and forth and back and forth. And Shawn's just like, Nope, I'm not coming. Not going to do it. We're on a time crunch too, because we only have so much time to get everything done. And I go back to Vince and we talk about it and the decision is made that we're going to do it with Tyson alone, but we had uh, triple H in China and everything out there. So we were going to use triple H and Tyson to get the physicality on Steve, get Steve tied up in the rope. And the shot would be just Mike Tyson, giving him a kiss. And it's like, Sean doesn't want to come out. Fine. We'll do it without Sean. And the focus will be Steve and Tyson. That's what we went out when they all went out to get into it. That is what we thought was going to happen. And that is what we were prepared for. And then out of the blue, I was at ringside. Uh, I get kicked in the back of the head because Shawn Michaels ran from the limousine and leapt into the ring and just caught me right in the back of the head with his boot. Um, Shawn got in for the physicality and, got the picture taken and all was right with the world, but it was, it was iffy up until the precise moment when he was supposed to be there. He finally showed up on a scale of one to 10. How difficult was Sean to deal with, with for you, Vince, the office, just from the company standpoint in general at this time, 
during during this during this whole run, you know, earlier you can deal with assholes and you can deal with people that are difficult as long as you know what you got and and how to deal with them. You can figure all that out. That's not that difficult. Um, Sean, at this point, going into WrestleMania and from probably from January on, from the injury on, he was he was a good nine point five to deal with. Yeah, he was there. I like it. So let's talk about WrestleMania, man. We're here. Uh, let's get into it. You guys drew more than 19,000 fans, more than 16,000 of which paid a, a million dollar plus gate, the biggest ever in the history of the building, $273,000 in merchandise that day, which set a per head record of more than $14 and a ton of pay-per-views, 836,000 plus for nearly $11 million on pay-per-view, uh, a banner year for the WWE when it comes to WrestleMania. Hypothetically, what would Johnny A say about those type of numbers, Bruce? Cowabunga, dude. It's the largest gate in North American history since WrestleMania 8 at the Hoosier Dome. Is that the sort of record that JR would have kept up with at the time since he was sort of heading up talent relations and things like that? Well, JR, man, you know, from a commentary standpoint, JR did his homework. And JR, man, he. <laughs> there were people that did stats and different things for him, but JR liked to do the work because JR, then, if he did the work and he did all of that research, then he knew it and he, he felt it. So that was that was all Jim, man. Why was Boston the host city for WrestleMania? Because this is before cities were really bidding on WrestleMania, right? And, and the years prior, you guys had sort of bounced around a little bit. I believe 10 was at Madison Square Garden. Uh, 11, I think, was in Hartford. 12, you're in Anaheim. 13, you're in Chicago. And now you're in Boston for 14. Uh, what was the decision that led you guys to say, Boston is it Boston's where we're going. Boston was a great market and it was someplace that we had not been before. Northeast always drew. Well, Vince wanted to give one to Boston. In addition to that, we were also in negotiations to do something at the, uh, the Patriot stadium there and working with Robert Kraft, to possibly do a bigger show on down the road. So Boston presence, but you know, it was one of those traditional WWE markets that always did well. We've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, which is available at something to wrestle.com in the archives, but talk everybody through what that bidding process might be for WrestleMania and sort of when it started, because I think a lot of us fans here that cities bid on WrestleMania, but nobody really knows what that means until you sort of smarten us up, Bruce. Well, the, the whole thing is, is that when WrestleMania comes to your town, that that's a year long process. And the promotion for WrestleMania starts when the previous WrestleMania ends. So th during that time, we wanted to announce from the year before where WrestleMania is going to be next year and, and start that promotion. You get your ticket sales out there early, but you start the buzz so that everybody's talking about where it's coming later years. It got to the point where cities came to us when they saw the economic impact that WrestleMania would have on any particular city, they wanted WrestleMania no different than they want the Super Bowl. They want WrestleMania to, to come to their city and to spend a week, you know, hyping it and being able to say, Hey, we're from new Orleans for an entire week. And that economic impact on the city is 
tremendous. So it got to that point. And that's where it is right now. So let's go ahead and get started on the card. And I feel like now's a good time to remind everybody that you can actually watch WrestleMania 14 right now on the WWE network. How much does that cost again? Dusty. Baby. It's only nine ninety nine right here. And let me tell you how funky, like that monkey is. There's some good shit in there because you get to see me dance with little Miss Sapphire. My polka dots looking like only I can look, baby. This is what we do, ladies and gentlemen. This is what we do. So Hawk and Animal are out <laughs> first. It's really the first big entrance that we see here. And they're now LOD 2000. They get the big entrance to open the show. Mm-hmm. And they used to generate a reaction that was called the Road Warrior Pop. But now, 10 years later, you guys have reached deep into the box of gimmicks. You pull out new haircuts, you pull out helmets, and you pull out Sonny. Bruce, <laughs> uh, who booked this shit? Well, we booked this shit, man. It was, it was a way to, you know, after a while, an act can only go so far if you don't change it, if you don't evolve. And the LOD had been the same for so long. It was time. It was time for just something new and something different. You know, the undertaker has been the undertaker for all these years, but he's changed his look. He's evolved. He's changed his character. He's changed the way that he works in the ring. And it's something that, you know, people may not be able to, put their finger on, but he changes. The LOD had not changed in so long. They needed a drastic makeover. So let's change, you know, the way that they come out. Let's change their gear a little bit. Animal went to the short, uh, the short shorts and just change it up a little bit. Give a new, new paint of coat, new paint of coat, new (laughs) coat of If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help. And you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Savewithconrad.com. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to goliathlife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to goliathlife.com. I feel like uh, we're going to have a uh, paint of coat shirt available soon over at brucepritchard.com. What do you say? I kind of like it because if you do and you get that paint of coat uh, shirt, you know, I'll be sure and call you and say, hey, what the hell? Yeah, that's actually not a rib. I guess we should mention if you're a new listener to the show or a new viewer to the show, when you pick up a shirt over at brucepritchard.com, not only do you get a great shirt, but eventually Bruce calls and personally thanks you. So you don't just get a shirt, you get an experience. And, uh, it's on the low over at <laughs> brucepritchard.com. So check it out. Uh, you like the way I just slyly slid that in there. You think everything yeah. here, Bruce? Oh no. Everything for, uh, for us, all our live events and, uh, all of our merchandise, everything is over at brucepritchard.com. So check it out. So let's talk about LOD 2000. I have to say, I didn't hate all of this. And I think Jr. said something like new haircuts, maybe a new attitude and a new manager. Uh, as a 14 year old watching this, how roll tide was sunny, man. Man, Sonny was the original diva. Sonny was hot, and she looked great in that outfit. So, man, if you're going to give him a fresh paint of coat, 
I'm sticking with that. I'm sticking with the painted coat. If you're going to give him a stick, sto- you know what I meant. Um, so then give him, give him a new manager, too. <laughs> it's not that time yet. Uh, so they're in a, a tag team battle royal here, and everybody's in this thing, including the Rock and Roll Express. And I think a lot of people have probably forgotten that the Rock and Roll Express ever competed at a WrestleMania, but they're here. And the winners of this battle royal are going to get a tag title shot the next month at Unforgiven. So, of course, it comes down to LOD 2000 and the new Midnight Express. And I'm not making this up. That's Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart. Bruce was bringing back the Midnight Express name and saddling these guys with these names a rib. This has to be a rib. It's not a rib, mother. Shut up. It was one of those stupid ideas that Bruce Pritchard had, and I hated every bit of it because there's only one Midnight Express, and that's Bobby and Stan, or it could be Bobby and Dennis, or it could be anybody with Bobby as long as I'm there, and I got a tennis racket and a double cheeseburger, double cheese, extra onion, extra mayo. So, are you. You love that. So let me ask you though, are you suggesting by, by that little rant you just went on that bringing in a midnight express was not Jim Cornette's idea? No, it was my idea. Wow. Okay. So talk me through this, this whole NWA invasion, I thought had Corny's fingerprints all over it. The NWA invasion did have Corny's, uh, fingerprints all over it. And it was something that he wanted to do with his friend, Dennis Coraluzzo, who was the I guess, president of the NWA, whatever the hell that meant at that time. And he wanted to bring in the rock and roll express and some of those, some of those NWA acts, the midnight express was not an option because it was just Bobby at the time. And I don't know that Bobby was working at the time, but we said, why not create a new midnight express? Bob Holly was actually someone that corny had discussed at one point to be uh, a part of the Midnight Express when Stan was leaving. Um, and Bob Holly was someone that was highly recommended by Corny when we brought him in a Sparky Plug. So Bob Holly was a natural, and then we were looking for something to do with Bart. Why not? I, I thought they were a hell of a team, and uh, it was a good idea. What were the other ideas for them at the time? Was this the only idea, so that's what we went with? It, for Bart and Bob? Right. Well, it was, yeah, we didn't have a whole lot for them. So it was, let's make them a team. And this was a way to get them into the mix right away. I'm curious, this whole NWA invasion, you said that did have Corny's fingerprints all over it. What did it sound like when he tries to pitch that to Vince? Everybody knows the NWA. It's the greatest organization in the entire world. And Bobby and Stan were NWA world champions. I can't even count how many times along with Rock and Roll Express. And NWA is, 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 is it's the best. That didn't go over that great, but, <laughs> you know. Wait, wait, that's serious? He's trying to pitch that NWA is the best events? I think, I think that Corny truly believes that the NWA was better than WWE. And that's where he grew up. That's where he made his name. And for him, that is how he felt. Okay. Well, let's, let's tell you what Dave well, sure as hell ain't ECW. Easy, easy. Uh, here's what Dave Meltzer felt in the wrestling observer newsletter about this match. Legion of doom won an awful 15 team battle Royal in eight minutes and 19 seconds. The match was so nondescript that they never even bothered telling us who was in there in the first place. Guys were being eliminated so fast that the announcers could barely keep up with it, and it didn't matter because nobody cared. 
Negative star and a half. Your response, Bruce? Kind of like nobody cares what Dave Meltzer has to say about matches or anything else. So there you go. You like this match? You saw this match. I need you to defend this. You liked this match this week. Um, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be <laughs> when I was watching it. Boy, the, um, that's, that's a the glowing goal. report, isn't it? Uh, that's the goal, right? You want your on. first match at WrestleMania when you come back through the curtain. It's not as bad as I thought. Yeah. Uh, okay. Everybody got in. All right. I think you got some camera time. Okay. Yeah. Double thumbs Everybody up. Got. So it was the entire match was a way to get everybody on the card, get them a WrestleMania match and to be able to expose the brand new Legion of doom and it accomplished that. Absolutely. And as a kid, as I said, Sonny was there. So it worked for me. There uh, you go. Up, so you had something to do that night. There you go. What? Hey, now, uh, next up we see Takamichi Noku take on Aguilera. I probably just Aguila. I don't know. I'm a hillbilly from Alabama. I'm the mortgage guy. I'm not a broadcaster. Poppy Chulo in a mask. There, I don't think he was there yet. That is Poppy. Poppy Chulo. Yeah, but he's not called that here. No. Yeah. Why, why are you busting balls? You say his name then, smart. I'm not going to. That's why I said. Yeah. That's why Aguila. I say Papi Chulo. I don't <laughs> love you. Went into Michael Hayes there. Whenever you can't announce, do, do, do. Uh, they go about six minutes, and Dave Meltzer wrote of it. There were great high flying moves, but Aguila needs to go to wrestling school. Except for his amazing flying ability, he's worse than a lot of other people in their first pro match. He showed he couldn't wrestle a lick with some of the most pathetic looking chops, punches, kicks, and selling you'd ever see. Certainly on this level of a stage, he gave the match half a star and, uh, Jr has bragged basically about signing everyone who ever worked for WWE in the history of the company. Hypothetically, how would Jr pitch this to a guy like Taka and a guy like Aguila? If they know that the cruiserweights are really being featured on WCW, not so much here with WWE. Well, first of all, uh, I don't think that Jr hired, Aglia, Aglia. He, hired, he hired everybody. Listen okay. to his podcast on Westwood One. He'll tell you. Okay. Well, um, pretty sure he was mine along with Taka as well. And he didn't have to pitch that because I did. Damn it. And it was an, well, it was an attempt to. Uh... <laughs> Jim Ross claims he signed Steve Austin, Stone Cold. I mean, literally every major star. And you're over here like, I got Taka. Taka was mine. Her sassafras. That's all I got to say about that. Okay. Uh, no, ta- you, think of- you know, I'm not going to sit here and go over and debate everyone that I signed and that Jr. signed. Uh, we signed, and as a team, it ends up being Vince McMahon approves it, and they get hired. So there you go. Sure. Uh, what do you think of the match here? Fair criticism from Melker? <laughs> I thought that the match was... Okay, it was it was a spot orgy. Was all it was. Okay, I don't think that word's been said on the network before. Uh, next spot? up, we go. Speaking of orgies, <laughs> next up we go backstage and we see The Rock talking to Jennifer Flowers. I'm sure we've got some younger viewers, and I have no idea why your parents are letting you watch this. Uh, explain to everybody who Jennifer Flowers was and how this relationship came to be. Uh, Jennifer Flowers was the mistress of the President of the United States, Bill Clinton. And she was a uh, celebrity in her own right and uh, a hot topic in the world. Meltzer wrote of the segment, it was a little overboard and predictable, but Maya Villa's mannerisms are tremendous. 
was anyone else considered for this segment with Jennifer, or was this always supposed to be an opportunity to showcase The Rock? I'm sure we talked about a lot of different people in doing it, but Rock kind of fit the fit the mold the most for what we wanted to get as person. We wanted to get something personality driven with him out there. He's only about 16 months into the company here, and he's already started to break out of his shell a little bit. And uh, he's going to be in a featured feud here to sort of be the leader of the nation of domination. But I think this is one of the first times we heard him use the line, smell what the rock is cooking. Do you remember there being any funny sort of rock isms that Vince McMahon didn't quite get and he needed somebody to sort of catch him up on? Not so much with the rock as it was, you know, sometimes I don't think he really got what a blunt was and like this up for this pimp daddy and things of that nature. But as far as if you can smell what I'm cooking, that's something that Vince would get. Cause Hey, damn, if you can only smell what I've been cooking, <laughs> that kind of good stuff. He got that one. Next up, we see Chris Warren and the DX band here, and uh, they've been a big part of WWE programming, but we've never actually seen them. They did the DX theme song and the rumor and innuendo is that Chris Warren, the lead singer, actually really impressed Jim Johnston, who we all remember, who wrote most of the famous WWE themes that we all grew up on. How did this relationship with Chris Warren come to be? Because he's in a featured spot here on the biggest show of the year for you guys. Yeah, we always were looking for young talent and young bands that we could display their works. And Chris was someone, they liked his work. They liked his song. He did the DX opening and it worked. So he was somebody that we wanted to promote and, and help out. And it helped that he worked well with Jim Johnston. So of course they're here because they're going to do DX's theme song live. And of course we're going to get pyro. Now there was no pyro to open the show, no big presentation, but we've got to have it for Hunter Hearst Helmsley because He's coming out, and uh, he deserves to be featured, right, Bruce? Yes, and I think we did have Pyro in the show as well. So, well, you did for you did for him, and he had a live band. And oh, he's not by himself. China was with him. Yeah, she was. We lose power. Are we still here. You're still not. Here? You're not. But uh, I am. Hey, Hunter. Just want to make sure we're still on the air. Um, so JR is pushing China here on camera in a big way saying that she's uh, benching 320. She's deadlifting 400, but Meltzer would write China is now wearing makeup in an attempt to soften her look a little. Was this a decision made on behalf of the company or is this something China just did on her own? Of course, we knew that she got some plus twos recently. Now she's doing her makeup differently. Is this a conscious effort from WWE to sort of change her look or just something that Joni decided to do on her own? No, this was a conscious effort that Jody did on her own. And she just was, you know, again, evolving, changing her look up. Uh, the deal in the match is that China would be handcuffed to commissioner slaughter to keep her from interfering in the match. Any interesting stories about handcuffs you can tell us about in the WWE? <laughs> uh, no, the, the only one I guess I should share is when Jerry Jarrett mentioned that he could not be ribbed in a pair of handcuffs ended up around his bag in a bolted desk to the floor. And um, since she's no longer with us, Luna Vachon lost her handcuffs that night. Just saying. Uh, according to the uh, rumor and innuendo, uh, Hunter's opponent, Owen Hart, was working with a bad ankle. So bad that allegedly he had to cut the cast off in order to make the match happen. Do you remember that cast situation? Would that ever happen today? Well, it... I, don't think it was a hard cast. It was a walking cast 
type of situation that he had kept on as long as he could. And he was cleared to go out and wrestle. Um, probably would have helped if he had a little bit more time, but he was cleared to go out and he was fine to actually have the match and they protected him pretty well. They go about 11 minutes, plenty of hijinks here, multiple low blows, powder in Sarge's eyes, and then a pedigree for the pin. Meltzer gave the match three stars, which considering Owen's injury, uh, pretty damn good. Is it not? I thought it was great. I, I thought that they had a good match, told a good story and it, you know, was what it was. The, Funniest part to me was the fact that Vince McMahon hates the powder spot and that we use the powder spot in there with Sarge. And at the end of the match, you've got Sarge in a black T-shirt and black pants covered in powder. And the referee just looking down like, oh, hey, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Let's address the uh, rumor and innuendo, because according to the legend, Owen Hart was supposed to face Shawn Michaels at In Your House to Generation X. Of course, it doesn't happen there. Sean instead takes on Ken Shamrock. And then the next month at Royal Rumble, he takes on The Undertaker. It's a 10-man tag in February. So Sean never works a program with Owen Hart. Instead, they program Owen with Hunter. But Hunter beat him a few weeks before for the title. And he beat him again here. And he's going to beat him again on Raw. Uh, Help me understand. How can you defend this silly bullshit of shoving Hunter down our throats when we needed Owen Hart to get his revenge? Why did you need Owen Hart to get his revenge? We needed heat, and we were losing our top heel in Shawn Michaels, who was going away after this. So you needed someone underneath with heat. And Hunter was the next guy in line. He was a part of DX, and he needed to have that heat, and that was the reason that we did it that way. Just because you know you want it or the fans think that's what they want, it doesn't fit storyline. It doesn't fit what we need when you're losing a top heel like Shawn Michaels and you're looking down the roster for someone to come in and replace him and be able to step into that role. You've got to build people, and that's exactly what we were doing is building talent. Got your chapstick ready? I don't need any chapstick. So let's talk about, Are we, um, I'm sorry. Do you need chapstick? Are we going to be talking about somebody else here? What? No, I we're talking about you kissing Hunter's ass I, as usual. I didn't like kiss anybody's a, ass. Okay. Well, you defended it. So let's talk about, no, I explained uh, it to you. I don't know. See, you guys get all in this uh, uproar and this huffy because of the position that he's in right now. At the time you're looking at talent and, and that's what people, it always amazes me. They don't choose to look at it from a business standpoint and you have a roster of talent that you're trying to utilize and get the most out of. And they don't, if he were not in the position that he is in today, you wouldn't ever brought that up. Let's talk about something that I can't believe Jr. brought up in this match. And it's that Earl Hebner's not here. Allegedly he had a brain aneurysm the day before he showed up in Boston on Friday. He was fine. But on Saturday, the day before WrestleMania, he goes down and goes to the hospital. Some people from the office come to check on him. Uh, he doesn't recognize anybody and he's pretty bad off here, uh, with a bit of a health scare. And, um, I've never really heard this story. What happened with Earl? Were you there? Well, um, I saw him in the hospital, but it was, it was a scary thing at the hotel where they called nine one one and Earl wasn't himself. They thought he had had a stroke got him right to the hospital and, and got him to um, one of the top hospitals in the world. But yeah, he had a brain aneurysm and just, he had no clue. And it was, it was scary life and death there for a while that no one knew exactly what the hell was going on with Earl. 
Um, obviously he didn't make WrestleMania, but we were all pretty damn worried about him. And I remember Dave, especially his brother, just being beside himself because, you know, they're twins and twins have that special bond where it was scary. And we just didn't really know at this point, but he pulled out. What would his, his role at WrestleMania have been? Would he have done the main event? Earl would have refereed the main event. Yes. So let's talk about, uh, and I'm really excited to talk about this. Jr. said the word hospital on the show. And I bring this up because we fans have always been led to believe that there's a certain set of words that Vince McMahon just really despises being on WWE programming. And they're almost banned words. And hospital is one of those. What are the other words we can't say <laughs> on WWE TV? Well, they're words that he prefers, descriptors that he prefers rather than a hospital. It's a medical facility rather than a belt. It's a championship. And when you look at the reasons for this, there is a reason that we describe wrestling as the WWE and how the rest of the world describes it. Because going all the way back to 1983, Vince had his commentators talk about the then WWE and replace that with where they would have said wrestling. So that has been able, it's a learning process. And the more you say it, the more you remind people they're going to get in that habit. So it's not a belt. It's a championship. Um, those are the ones off the big ones off, off the top of my head. It, mean, it means up. more to win a championship than a belt. Next up, we've got the artist formerly known as Goldust. He's tagging with Luna Vachon, and they're going to take on Marvelous Mark Merrow and Sable. And we've talked about Mark Merrow on our show before. Uh, there were a few different ideas kicked around. Of course, he was Johnny B. Bad in WCW, Dusty Rhodes creation. But then when he comes over, you guys try Wildman Mark Merrow and then Marvelous Mark Merrow. Were there any other ideas considered for Mark Merrow? Well, there was the one really great idea that, that Mark Merrow had, which was... Just use his real name, Mark, and then Marrow, but then he calls himself Marco Marrow. And when he comes out, the chant is Marco. And then the crowd says, Marrow, Marco, Marrow. Pretty good, huh? We're going to need to see that on a WWE show sometime soon. Uh, Meltzer would give this match three stars. And I think considering Sable was still so new to wrestling. Uh, that's pretty darn good. I mean, the, the crowd is super hot for everything that she's doing and for her to be so green, it feels like this would have been a match. They would have worked out as a foursome in great detail before they went out there. Is that fair to say? You know, they, they had not, they had an opportunity to, to go through it beforehand, but to me, the superstars in this match were gold dust and Luna Vachon who were there for everything and made both Sable and Mark Marrow look like a million bucks. There's a rumor out there that Luna was given strict instructions that if Sable got hurt, even accidentally, it was going to cost her her job. Do you remember people being really concerned, maybe because of some backstage heat between these two, that maybe Luna would take some liberties with Sable? Luna and Sable did not like each other. Okay, They're, That's not a secret, and that was definitely out there. And Luna was a pro. And Luna wasn't going to go out and hurt anybody out in the ring. So that was really a non-issue. That was probably something that the rumor and innuendo mill got a hold of and just said, oh, yeah, they, they warned Luna. Otherwise, Luna would beat the hell out of her. No, Luna was a professional and did what she needed to do. We've covered Goldust in long form in our archives over at somethingtowrestle.com. 
But chat me up about the artist formerly known as Goldust briefly. How would Goldust's father, Dusty Rhodes, describe that character? Well, he'd probably talk about how it's just funky like a monkey, baby. And you know that gold dust is almost like Stardust himself with all the gold glitter coming down and looking so pretty with his little blonde hair. But it never be covered in polka dots like the dream, baby. So before the next match, we see Tennessee Lee come out with his jump rope and uh, he's out with Jeff Jarrett and Jennifer Flowers. And Flowers says that she's, quote, been with great and you are great. And Meltzer quips, obviously, she was referring to something other than the TV ratings that he brings. What was the thinking in bringing Jennifer Flowers out here to sort of introduce people? I mean, she's here with Tennessee Lee and Jeff Jarrett. They're not really doing anything in the next match, though. Is this just an opportunity? Let's get her out in front of the crowd. We've done the backstage skit, so let's just find a way to incorporate her for the live house. Sure. That's exactly it. She had done everything backstage, and now let everybody see her out in the arena and have her introduce a match. Now, of course, you you guys are not having Double J work a match, so how do you think he spent his day? Well, uh, I'm pretty sure it was spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Next up, we've got a short match for the Intercontinental title with Ken Shamrock and Rocky Maivia. Somehow Shamrock overcomes, and eventually it looks like he's got a win but he will not release a hold on the rock afterwards. Shamrock takes on every member of the NOD by himself and then starts suplexing officials. Eventually, as they're stretching out the rock, they announce that the referee has reversed his decision because Shamrock wouldn't release the hold. So now instead of the rock losing his intercontinental title, he retains and they get a hilarious shot of the rock being wheeled away here. And even though he's on a stretcher, he's holding up the intercontinental title. (laughs) Shamrock flips out. These guys are brawling some more. I thought this was an underrated segment on the show. What'd you think, Bruce? Oh, I thought it was absolutely great. Again, you see the greatness of rock and Ken Shamrock, tremendous dancing partner. Shamrock had it all, man. And that intensity that Ken Shamrock brought to the table was you, you just can't manufacture that. That's Ken Shamrock right there. And you feel that intensity and you feel the reality of what it is to be in the ring with a Ken Shamrock. So I thought it was done to perfection. The whole stretcher going up, that was something that you know we kind of stole, that we did that with the King, Jerry Lawler, earlier, many years before. And it was something we stole and added in there with the rock, and it worked to perfection. We see a cameo of Pat Patterson in the pull apart and, um, Meltzer only gives this match a star and a half. How do you think Pat Patterson would react to uh, Meltzer's star rating here? At a pedicated, uh, chase, 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 uh, Dave Meltzer at a pace. Uh, Rocky was bleeding from the mouth in this match and Meltzer sort of freestyled. that This was the only planned blood spot, but rock would say it was actually a bruised lung. Do you remember what happened with rock that night to cause him to be bleeding from the mouth like that? Yeah, it was, he got hit pretty hard and was coughing up blood. So that, that's what we did, Dave. We, we, we kicked him really hard so he could cough up blood. We planned that. We put that in the run sheet so that they would do that. Cause you're so genius because you're there all the time. You idiot. 
Let's talk about Ken Shamrock because he deserved a bigger push, at least from my standpoint. The crowd's really into him. He's very believable, but he doesn't really get the main event push that I imagine he could have gotten. Was somebody in the office down on him or who wasn't sold on Ken to where he did more? I don't, I think that Ken did a hell of a lot and Ken had a lot of exposure and was in some high profile matches and had a great run while he was there. Nobody was down on Ken Shamrock. I thought Ken delivered in everything and I thought he had a hell of a run. You guys did the, I'm just a wrestler promo next with the undertaker, stone cold, Shawn Michaels, the rock. I think Shamrock and Mero are in there. It's very well done. And it's one of the first attitude promos. Do you remember who produced this or where it was shot? It almost looks like it's in a big warehouse. Yeah, those are Dave Sahadi productions. And those were pieces that we did, just, you know, kind of awareness pieces and attitude pieces to let people know and get our athletes out there in a different light. Next up is uh, a pretty memorable match. It's the New Age Outlaws defending their tag team championship against uh, Cactus Jack and Terry Funk in a dumpster match. How would Paul Heyman describe a dumpster match, Bruce? Well, sir, since I do not have a Heyman thing here, precisely, if I could have another volley with someone else, you would have to say, it's where you throw your opponent into a dumpster, and sir, it is hardcore. Several weeks prior to this, you guys did a phenomenal angle on Raw. It's here on the WWE Network. We covered it in our archives, where all of a sudden, Chainsaw Charlie and Cactus Jack wind up in the dumpster, and the New Age Outlaws push them off the stage. And you guys played it legit. Sonny's crying. There's hushed voices. Uh, you, you sort of convince everybody that it's legit and then ruin it at the end with some silly run-ins. Uh, but here at WrestleMania, Terry Funk is competing and not Chainsaw Charlie. There's no explanation given, as Hurricane would say. What's up with that? Well, I got to tell you, the, the idea was this was the time this was real and, and what the outlaws did to chainsaw Charlie now brings out Terry Funk where sometimes you would say it'd be the opposite. The alter ego of Terry Funk chainsaw Charlie would come out that now it's like, okay, now you're getting the funker. Um, and, and that was pretty much the explanation for us and how we took it. And it was right to have Terry Funk in that role. Why did the Chainsaw Charlie character exist in the first place? You've got a legend in Terry Funk here who has an established name amongst wrestling fans. Why switch it up and go Chainsaw Charlie instead anyway? Because that's something that Terry Funk wanted to do. It was Terry Funk's idea to be able to um, honor his friend, John Ayers, who was a childhood friend of Terry Funk's, and they used to go to a barber that they nicknamed chainsaw charlie and terry really wanted to do this for john Ayers. john Ayers had just passed away and it was his memoriam to john Ayers, and it was terry's idea dave Meltzer wrote that the original idea for this match at wrestlemania was supposed to be a bar bar match but viewers choice had sort of put their foot down and said that they wouldn't allow them to promote such a match now, a month prior to that at No Way Out, there was barbed wire involved in the main event, but it wasn't promoted as such. Do you remember Viewer's Choice having an issue with this? And was Vince using the barbed wire a month prior, just sort of the middle finger to them? No, I don't remember ever asking Viewer's Choice for their permission to do any kind of match. The dumpster match was something that was different, and it all stemmed from the angle that we shot, putting Terry and Jack, I mean, uh, Terry and Jack in the 
dumpster beforehand. So I don't ever remember that ever wanting to be a barbed wire match. All the guys wind up brawling backstage. And of course, eventually there's a forklift involved. Terry Funk drives the forklift and, and manages to get the dumpster closed. So the new age outlaws drop the tag team championship. We've got new champions with Terry Funk and Cactus Jack. The match got four and a quarter stars, an absolutely brutal match, which is available now. You got to go check this out. Um, Terry Funk suffered a bruised kidney here. He's 52 years old. And he was uh, throwing caution to the wind. What did you think of this match here? I thought that the match was great and it told a good story. And you got to see the best of Cactus and the best of the Funker. And Terry's kidney, you can actually see it when they're backstage. Right before they're going into the uh, spot with the forklift, you can see Terry's shirt come up. One of the most god-awful bruises you'll ever see. And it went all the way down his ass, down to his uh, leg. It was it was gross. What did Vince think of hardcore wrestling like this? For the most part, Vince didn't really like it. But there were times I think it was warranted and that uh, he would accept it. And for the right guys, it worked. I'm curious, who was the agent on a match like this? That was probably Jerry Briscoe. Okay. Jerry did a lot of the hardcore stuff back in the day. Now, of course, the Outlaws are losing the belts here, but the next night on Raw, they were made men because of the DX reunion, were they not? Absolutely. Definitely. There's a, uh, there's a legend out there that uh, Mick Foley had actually pitched a best of sevens uh, matches with Terry Funk, and he wanted match seven to be filmed at the Double Cross Ranch in Amarillo, Texas. But ultimately, the company went another direction. Do you remember hearing an idea about a best of seven and maybe shooting a match at the double cross ranch? I do remember, uh, the whole best of seven and the idea behind it was to get Terry and Mick, their whole death match series that they made famous in Japan. Vince was looking for something else for Mick at the time. And he was looking for Mick to be in a more high profile match and getting him into the program with Austin. So it just didn't fit our plans at the time, and it, and it wasn't something he really wanted to do. It was also pitched to do the explosion matches like they did in Japan that Onita made famous, and that was another pitch that was thrown out there as well. Next up is Pete Rose. He's out and working the crowd and clearly a heel. He's getting booze, and that doesn't stop when he starts to make <laughs> Bill Buckner jokes, uh, and the fans are not digging this at all. And then all of a sudden, Kane comes out, and tombstones Pete Rose, and the crowd goes banana, as Pat Patterson would say. But I find this interesting because this almost feels like he's booked as a babyface, and this is a guy who just set a cameraman on fire, and two months prior locked his brother in a coffin and set him on fire. But he's a babyface. Bro, how do you explain this? He wasn't a babyface. He was a stone-cold heel. He was a babyface for a second when he goes out and... uh takes care of pete rose but then as soon as undertaker comes out he's right back to a heel it was a nice spot for the live live audience and also for the uh, pay-per-view audience and what a spectacle it was when the undertaker makes his way to the ring next i think you could say this is probably at least in my estimation the best undertaker wrestlemania entrance ever up to that point you've got all the druids they've got torches there's smoke there's i mean all the effects are here is this the best WrestleMania entrance for The Undertaker up to this point, in your opinion? Bar none. Absolutely the best, and it was just cool as hell. So a lot of the uh, Druids uh, who were carrying torches, it was in The Observer, were independent guys like Tony Rumble. Who would have sourced Druids? Uh, do you guys just go to a special store to find these guys, or what does that look like? 
Uh, no, you you go on down the street. It's uh, Druids Are Us, and okay. they've got a big one there in Boston. Oh, okay, cool. Well, that's yeah. good. Uh, did you guys have to do some sort of walkthrough with the fire that day? Because I got to say, having fire that close to the crowd made me a little nervous, <laughs> and I knew nothing was going to happen. But still, it feels like something people would have been a little curious about. Yeah, you have to have fire marshals involved anytime you want to light a match inside of a building with uh, other people in it. So we rehearsed it uh, ad nauseum and made sure the fire marshal and everybody was copacetic with what we wanted to do. The Undertaker is going to go nearly 17 minutes with Kane here. It only gets a star and a half in the Observer. Dave was pretty critical, saying Kane kicked out after uh, a second after the three count, which left the finish flat. There's nothing that flattens a finish pop more than the loser kicking out just after the third count, although they wanted to make it as though the match was over, but Kane didn't lose. So lots of tombstones, lots of choke slams, but Kane kicking out after the pinfall. What say you? Fair criticism by me? No, it's an idiotic criticism because you're building two monsters and you're building Kane in the process of it. That was laid out that way so that he got the win, but then Kane is still alive and he's still coming back. We're telling stories here. And that was the story that we're telling. And it wasn't about an 18-star match in the Tokyo Dome. And that's the part when, you know, these criticisms, people that don't understand, you have to look at the whole story and what you're telling. And that told the story, Kane coming back and Kane getting his heat after the match. Well, you guys had been telling this story for like seven or eight months up to this point. After all that build, and this is the first time they really have a match, could it have ever lived up to the hype? I don't know if it really ever could have lived up to the hype that people really expected for it. However, it didn't disappoint in my book. It was a good big man match, and it told a good story, and it also lets you know there's more to come. Clearly the biggest match of Kane's career. How was he this day? I mean, this is the first time he's been in a featured spot like this on the biggest show. Asshole puckered. Uh, (laughs) He was, you know, very nervous. His first time on, on the main stage and he's on the main stage with arguably one of the biggest stars ever in the history of the business. So he was a little nervous without a doubt. We all were. I think everybody was nervous when they saw the undertaker try the dive over the top rope down through the Spanish announce table. Talk me through this, Bruce. Is this an undertaker idea? Does anybody try to talk him out of this dive? It was an undertaker idea. And that's what I mean about reinventing himself and adding new moves and the evolution of the undertaker and and a character. He always added things to make his presentation different. And that's another way of doing it by adding the dive. They didn't expect to see that from him. Was Vince happy with the match? Was Undertaker happy with the match? I think, I think they were happy with the match because again, it's a starting point. So it wasn't going to be the match of the year, but it was a good starting point for him. I think it's worth mentioning too. I could be wrong on this, but I think this is the first time anybody's kicked out of a tombstone like this in a featured show. Was there any sort of hesitation as to whether or not that was the right call? There was a little hesitation at first, but at the same time, we all came to the realization it was the right thing to do, and it was the right thing to do for the character of Kane and the the whole story of Kane and Undertaker. Let's talk a little bit about the video that we see next. It's um, time for the main event, but first they show a phenomenal video here where we see Tyson showing that he's not impartial. Uh, We see him sporting a DX shirt. And he's saying that WrestleMania 15 is next. And he's also saying that Shawn Michaels is the champ. 
and he will be after the match and that he himself is still going to be the baddest man on the planet. Um, this package is phenomenal. Is this also a Sahadi package? That's probably, uh, I don't know. It was probably somebody back in the studio, like a Panucci or somebody like that. But, uh, the studio did great work on the way here. Austin had to do a lot more media than he normally had to do. How do you think he did in his role? Because, you know, we're, we're familiar with in the old days, you'd have a Hulk Hogan or an ultimate warrior or a macho man go on Regis and Kathy Lee. And now stone cold's in that spot. And we've never really seen him there. I know that's a big deal doing media for the company when you're the top guy. How did Vince think that Stone Cold did in those early outings here? Steve did well. He still needed to find himself. And Steve was trying to walk that line of being Stone Cold Steve Austin and being Steve Williams in a media and, and knowing which media he could be which guy in. So Steve was still trying to find himself in that role, but I thought he did a good job. And I think Vince was happy with it overall because he was engaging. He did have a sense of humor and didn't take himself too seriously. Tyson's out next and the DX band is playing him out and he's crotch chopping the fans, but also high-fiving them. (laughs) I don't know that Tyson really knew what the hell he was doing here. Your thoughts? Well, Mike was just so damn happy to be a part of the spectacle and coming out that, you know, he's doing his role being the heel enforcer with DX. But at the same time, people are holding their hands out and he's happy. That's what he sees on TV. He wants to be a part of it. Next up, we get the Elimination Chamber music, which was sort of fun to hear. And we see Stone Cold Steve Austin walking down the hallway on his way to the ring. And this is well before we ever saw Goldberg do this. Whose idea was this shot? This isn't something we saw all the time. Well, we we would do it for big matches. We used to call it the boxing entrance. And it was the long boxing follow entrance where we would take them down the hall. We did it actually at the Survivor Series with Brett and Sean. And we would do it from time to time. And it was something that, that I had stolen, frankly, from the folks at Madison Square Garden. Because in the garden, they loved that shot of somebody coming out of the dressing room and walking down the hall. And you follow them all the way out into the arena. So it was... Just something we use for big matches, and we thought this was, you know, the biggest match of the night. Let's use it. We also briefly see you seated here in the gorilla position, and gorilla looks a lot different back then than it does now. <laughs> what were your what were your duties that day, and what was gorilla like as a role for a show like this? Well, man, it's it's the uh, last bastion of hope. It's the the last point, last instructions last anything for the talent before they come out. And then it's the first critique when they come back from the ring and also had to time the show and keep it on track and make sure that everything was running smoothly, as smoothly as it possibly could from that vantage point. But I look good. Didn't I was wearing my gray suit and everything. Next up, we see Shawn Michaels coming to the ring with both China and triple H triple H flips the camera off. And then when we get a tight shot of Shawn, he says, this one's for you, Earl. And uh, sending a little love to his buddy, Earl Hebner, who is in a real fight for his life at the hospital. But he also references his good luck charm, the ring around his neck. And Meltzer would write in The Observer that Sean had recently gotten engaged to a former seamstress, who was actually the shorter of the two uh, women who were dancing with Dude Love the prior year. And we briefly see a clip of her at the press conference after WrestleMania. What can you tell us? Had Sean recently gotten engaged to a former seamstress here? No, that's not true. Uh, the, the woman that Sean was engaged to at that time 
was a young lady. I believe she was from San Antonio. I don't know where she was from, but it was not the seamstress in any way, shape or form. Is it fair to say, if you look up swagger in the pro wrestling dictionary, which doesn't exist, but maybe it should, uh, it's Shawn Michaels for this, like six months, the last few (laughs) months of 97, the first few months of 98, this dude carries himself like the man here. Does he not? He was the main event and he was the man. So yeah, he, he definitely carried it. And that's probably why he had so much heat because in and out of the ring, that's how he carried himself. And he's obviously clearly hurting, but he's going to perform the match. And he appears to be in the best shape of his life. That has to lead to more sort of rumor and innuendo that he's not really that hurt when he looks this good. Does it not? Well, I think there's a lot of guys that look great, but they're in an awful lot of pain and they've got injuries and nagging injuries that are always going to affect them. And Sean did look great here, man. He, He looked like the champ. He took a turnbuckle spot, which if you have a back injury, I can't imagine taking, but he did. Sean wrote in his book that on a scale of 110, his pain here was at an 8. But in spite of the match they're putting on, there are actually chants in the crowd for Holyfield. Would you guys have ever even considered or imagined that that chant would be possible here? I don't think so. I don't think we called that one. And there were we were usually pretty good about anticipating chants, and that wasn't one we anticipated. There's rumor and innuendo that on the way to this match, Sean had demanded security. Did he do that? And if so, was, was that a result of the whole public workout fiasco? Sean had, had made a lot of demands. Sean wanted security when he arrived in Boston and he felt that the unruliness of the fans at the workout, but just in general, that he had a lot of heat on him in general. Steve was so red hot as a baby face that Sean wanted protection 24-7, and he got it, and we we got it for him. We had police escort him everywhere that he went leading up to WrestleMania and all the way to WrestleMania and after. So, you know, that's a reality, and that's something that we we did do. Allegedly, Steve was not really thrilled with the match. He sort of described it as a basic house show match. He had been working with Hunter at the time. Do you remember how this match was put together? Well, it was put together. I mean, Pat Patterson was the agent on it and the guys put it together. I've heard Steve say that. And I watched the match obviously right before this, I thought that the match told a good story. Uh, was it the greatest match of all time? No, it wasn't, but it was a damn good match and told a good story. And I thought it did a good job of getting where we needed to be. And that was getting stone cold, Steve Austin over and I kept looking for something to tell me this is a bad match. I didn't think it was a bad match at all. Meltzer didn't hate it. He gave it three and a quarter stars, but oh, in that case, and it, it sucked. <laughs> Steve was on record as saying that the, the match was just a chore getting into the ring. And there's been a legend out there that there are a lot of people concerned that Sean wouldn't do business. And there's maybe a famous internet legend now that the undertaker having these same suspicions actually goes and starts wrapping his fists in front of the undertaker or in front of Shawn Michaels as almost like an intimidation factor of, Hey, you're going to do what's what you've been asked to do. Now, Sean flatly denies that in his book and says, it's just an urban legend, but other people say it did happen, but it happened at gorilla with you. Once Sean was already out there. Do you remember hearing about any of this or what's true? What's not true about the undertaker and Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 14. Undertaker was seated, uh, directly in front of me and he sat there and wrapped his hands while Sean made his way to the ring. And Um, there was a subliminal message there that I'm going to be right here. When you come back, just make sure you do business. 
that was the message. That was the message that the entire locker room took. And um, that did happen. And Undertaker was seated right in front of Gorilla. Didn't say anything to, to Sean. Nothing. But Undertaker had finished his match and sat there and just wrapped his hands. Uh, Sean has said that anything mundane in the ring was difficult to do. It felt like his body wasn't moving the same. It felt like he was running in quicksand. Even running the ropes would hurt him. Uh, but to get through the match, he's on a fair amount of stuff. He references that he's talking about painkillers here. Um, I can't imagine that this is sort of the old wrestler cocktail that we've heard so much about. Somas were probably not the thing here. What type of, of, of pharmaceutical help would Sean have had help with here? God, I have no idea what the hell he, he took. If he took anything before the match, um, probably took some, some painkillers, but again, you'd have to ask him that one. I have no idea. I didn't see him take anything, nor do I know if he was on anything. It's been said that Sean came to the arena that day with his parents. And as a nice gesture, Vince McMahon gave him his own dressing room so he could sort of visit with his parents. Right. Did the office ask that his parents came or was that Sean's request? Uh, Sean, his parents came to WrestleMania and uh, they had come to several WrestleManias. So that wasn't anything that was out of the ordinary. They were there with Sean and they were also there to support him. And he had gone through his health issues in San Antonio with his parents and they wanted to be there for WrestleMania. Sean says that his dad, uh, was in the room when Vince came by to give a little bit of a speech saying, we really appreciate all your contributions. And no matter what happens, you'll always have a job with this company. And his dad was not impressed with the speech and said something like, if anything happens to my boy, there's going to be trouble. Uh, I can appreciate, you know, Sean's parents trying to be supportive, but it's sort of funny that nobody really talks about this, but if this was buff Bagwell's mom, uh, this would be a different story. Would it not? I, I don't know. I don't know Buff and I don't know his mother, but I tell you, Sean's dad is an old military dad and Sean's dad reminded me of my dad. Very no nonsense and very straightforward and was a no, just a no nonsense guy. Um, pretty stern. So as you read that, I could see his dad not believing anything that uh, this group of misfits and these damn carnival barkers and things like that, that, uh, he probably felt. So I could see that. I could see his dad having that feeling. Allegedly, uh, Steve came into the room and they start working through exactly what they're going to do in the match. And Mike Tyson's there too. And they're all sort of prepping for how this punch is going to be thrown. Obviously, Sean doesn't have a problem putting over Steve, but he'd probably rather not to end the night with a broken jaw. Was there any concern that Tyson might be too excited and not remember that this is not a real punch? <laughs> um, you know what? I'm sure that Sean probably had that concern <laughs> because I don't know if I'd want to even take Mike Tyson's working punch. However, Mike, you know, was boxers do know how to pull their punches and, and they do that on a regular basis. So Mike assured him that he wasn't going to take his head off or break his jaw. And we had to go with that. And Sean went with it and, uh, went out there and did it. Sean wrote in his book that Pat Patterson was pushing to get this Austin three sixteen shirt that Mike Tyson held up to be draped over Sean's face as he laid prone after the knockout punch and Sean refused to do it and thought it was overkill and he didn't have a problem losing with the stunner and then getting punched and knocked out by Mike Tyson. But he said, if you put the shirt on me, I'm going to get up and walk out. Ultimately, they agreed they would not do it, but they still did it. 
and Sean was furious about this. Do you remember the controversy about this Austin 316 t-shirt moment? Well, the original suggestion was not to drape it over his face. The original suggestion was that Tyson would rip off his DX shirt to reveal an Austin 316 shirt underneath. And that's what Sean originally had the problem with. And Sean hated it, didn't want him to do it, and felt that that wouldn't add anything to it. And then they came up with the draping, and I think they just did that. After the match, Sean goes to his locker room, lays down, starts to ice the back. Hunter comes and sits with him quietly. Steve comes by and thanks him. And of course, Vince McMahon comes by and thanks him and tells him what a great job he's done. And it's one of the most amazing things he'd ever seen. And Sean is very emotional by this. All the anger he'd been carrying just leaves his body. He's upset. He's weeping over the fact that this is finally done. And he feels now a little more and more angry about the way his career is going to end with this t-shirt spot in mind. So his blood starts boiling and he stomps into the press conference. He's got his things packed. He's still in his wrestling tights. He's got a t-shirt Hunter and whoever Sean is with that. We're not going to talk about, I guess is in tow. And he sort of tries to show his ass at the press conference. And Vince McMahon is on stage with stone cold, Steve Austin. So Shane McMahon sort of, uh, bears the brunt of this, uh, verbal assault from Shawn Michaels. You were there. What do you remember about this press conference situation? Well, I didn't get there until after the fact and I'd heard about it. Someone told me that Sean was down at the press conference. And so I got there pretty much after, you know, Sean had gotten there and I got there with Shane and we just, you know, got Sean away from the madness, if you will. But Sean felt that he should have been at the press conference and that he should have been there and they should be talking about him instead of Steve and Tyson, which is not the case. And again, you, you go back to things that we have done in the past where it was all about Sean, nobody else was there. And I think it was just a case of Sean feeling sorry for himself at that point and wanting to be the center of attention. And hey, don't forget about me. Austin is really setting up the McMahon feud here in the press conference saying that McMahon's not going to be able to mold him. And Vince McMahon takes a minute to really put over the contributions that Shawn Michaels had and talks about what a toll it must've taken on him, not just physically, but emotionally as well. We haven't really talked a lot about Vince's relationship with Shawn. How would you categorize their relationship? Because it feels like they've always had one that was different from maybe the way Vince handled every other superstar. I think Vince looked at Sean kind of like a father son and he loved Sean. Sean, uh, it was a love hate relationship early on, but Sean always stood up to Vince and told him what was on his mind. And this was an opportunity, you know, to give back, I guess you could say, but Vince always looked at Sean kind of like a son and, and he loved him. Sean was the guy that did the Montreal screw job and Vince always, or will never, ever forget that. And he appreciated uh, Sean's work ethic, and he appreciated Sean Michaels, the human being. So there's just a lot of love there, and, and like any relationship, especially a father son, you know, there's times you want to just strangle them. But um, for the most part, it, it was a lot of respect and a lot of love there. Let's talk a little bit about Steve Austin, of course, because he's had quite the, the journey to get here. Fired from WCW, comes in as the ringmaster nearly has his neck broken, and now he's finally world champion. Did you have an opportunity to catch up with Steve that night and see what this title and this night meant to him? Yeah, at the party, you know, it was, man, it was about verification or, or validation more than anything with Steve. And, and the fact that, you know, his 
black boots and little black boots, they actually got over, man, and, and he was the man. So I think Steve felt pretty damn proud of himself, and rightfully so. Usually in wrestling, when something works, you do it until it just doesn't work anymore, whether it's the NWO or the authority angle, but we don't see Mike Tyson again. Why did you guys never do anything with Mike again after this? Mike went back to boxing and you know, he, that's, that was his love. And once Mike knew that he could go back to boxing, that's what he wanted to do. And that was the role he took. It's worth mentioning this is the last WrestleMania. We would see the Winged Eagle world title that debuted at WrestleMania 4. The very next night, you guys are going to debut the new Big Eagle. Of course, the Winged Eagle was the Reggie Parks creation. Now we've got the Big Eagle on the blue strap that Vince McMahon is going to present to Stone Cold the next day, made by Joe Marshall. How far in advance had you guys decided we want to use a different belt and we're going to wait and debut it the night after? I think we had, we had decided, you know, when we were going to make Steve the champion, it would be in a new era, new championship belt. And that was it. There wasn't much more thought than that put into it. Well, let's put a bow on this episode with some hypothetical questions. You know, I love hypotheticals on the podcast. You can hear more of those at something to wrestle.com, but hypothetically, what was the main event supposed to be for WrestleMania 14 at the time of SummerSlam 97? I want to sort of set the stage here. In that main event, Bret Hart became the world champion, beating The Undertaker for the belt after an errant chair shot from Shawn Michaels. On that same show, Stone Cold Steve Austin damn near had his neck broken by Owen Hart. Of course, it was an accident, but still, it happened. At that time, did you guys have an idea of where you were going for the main event of WrestleMania 14? We were originally, originally, you know, we were looking at uh, possibly doing uh, Bret and Austin, but then it, you know, became Brett and Sean. I mean, not Brett and Sean. Yeah. Brett and Brett and Austin. And then, uh, you know, obviously got to Sean and Austin, but we were looking to make Steve the man at that point. Had Austin not been able to recover from the neck injury at SummerSlam. Do you think the Montreal screw job could have been avoided? Possibly, but that one we'll never know. I, I possibly had breath. Brett still left. Would Vince McMahon, now that Austin's out of play in this hypothetical situation, would Vince have made an attempt to sign Hulk Hogan, whose contract was allegedly going to be up at the end of 97? We did make an attempt. We did talk to him about it, and it just didn't happen. We made an attempt. We talked to him about it, and Hulk decided to stay where he was. Had Hulk come in, what would his role have been at WrestleMania 14? Uh, never got that far. So, I mean, there, there wasn't that what if situation because it never, ever got that far. I think Hulk just used the fact that, Hey, Vince is interested to continue his deal there and never got beyond that from WrestleMania four to 14. You were at all of them with the exception of eight. Is this the most important WrestleMania of your tenure at that time? Yes, definitely. It was the beginning of a new era. It was the beginning of a new era for sure, and it certainly is here on Something Else to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard here on the WWE Network. And we're going to take your questions live right after this on Facebook. Cruise on over, check us out, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle, and pick Bruce's brain. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast that drops every Friday at noon Eastern at something to wrestle.com. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next time right here on something else to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. That's me. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.